0: Hello, my name is Tina Camilla and this is The Studying Block, a weekly conversation on science and society with an emphasis on disinformation, data, and democracy. As usual, the transcript, additional links, and credits for this conversation are available on the sidelines to supplement to every main edition of The Studying Block. Now in the next lane, radio producer Hanif Barudin on creating and producing programs that cater to the Malay community. Ready? Let's go. Alright, so as usual, I will always start with an introduction and I will leave it to you to introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, so I'm Hanif Baharuddin. I'm a producer with BFM. Uh, I think uh, BFM 29.9, a radio station based in Malaysia. A talk radio station that focuses on business, current affairs, politics, and also uh, lifestyle, I suppose. Uh, but, we, yeah, but we seem to have a bit of everything under the sun, but we're mostly a talk station that's based in Klang Valley, Malaysia.
0: Right. And for a while, until maybe 2019, you were also the producer for Bila Larut Malam, which is a late night talk show in Malay about what, modern and traditional trends, maybe? Tell me more <laughs> about the legacy of this show, because I love it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, I don't legacy of the show yeah uh it's been a while to be honest so i i've sort of like i want to say move on but it's just that i'm a different face right now but the show has always had a um you'll definitely be be part of my portfolio and something that i'm quite proud of now i think what we're trying to do with billy lord malam was to start exploring uh, conversations um in a malay language but at the same time also looking at you know modern phenomenon and also traditional culture as well and at the time it was like an interesting period because we started seeing a lot of like trends emerging like vaping it was the in thing at the time so we were like oh, okay these are the things that we should be, be exploring be covering right be talking about and not just a traditional culture but at the same time obviously by nature of the show that we we need to also talk about the traditional stuff but that, that's to be expected but we are more interested in the more modern phenomenon modern cultural stuff at the time and because the producers are just me and my colleague, Azif. So it was, it was it eventually led to us deciding on where we want to go and where we want to bring the show. It's the only Malay language show on BFM. And because BFM by itself you know, is a station that has a lot of things under its, uh, its umbrella, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it sort of like naturally became a, a platform for us by the nature of the language to start like perhaps, you know, oh, we have a philosophy show. Why don't we do philosophy in Malay? Uh, oh, we have a you know financial show. Why don't we do finance in Malay? Um, so, yeah, I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but at the same time, it became like a platform to not necessarily translate like literally because we, we both know that the idea of a show like this has to be approached in its own way rather than just via translation. Lah. Because I, I think the initial approach of the Malay language belt at the time a Malay language department at the time was to translate or bring about all the other BFM shows, the ideological aspect as well, in Malay, which we, we felt was a bit reductive at that time, or rather um, we felt that, you know, that's not how you approach it. You can't just, you know, perhaps like, oh, uh, we already have all the content in English, just translate them to Malay. We don't think that's that's how you should go about it. We should look at it in a different, different lens. But at the same time, we can use all these shows that we have as a sort of form of inspiration to sort of like explore but look at it in a more critical lens, or in slightly different lens. I think the thing about us is that maybe ideologically we fit into BFM's more, but at the same time, we are both aware of the nuances that come with the language and also the community and also the, the whole world there. So, so the idea is to not just literally translate things. So BLM is supposed to be a show that looks at the community, the language, the society, uh, the nation, the country, in a in a, in a way that's more nuanced.
0: And even after BLM, after the your shows run, I still don't see a lot of original content in Malay, whether in traditional media or in social media, that focuses on, for instance, um, literary criticism or intellectual discourse, or maybe there was a small moment of publications like that that mushroomed, maybe in the mid twenty. Tens, late 2010s, and I was a part of some of those groups, and you know, I follow some of these channels or Twitter accounts and Facebook groups, but most of them seem to slowly turn into like this fascist racist support group. Why do you think that's the case? Why hmm. mm-hmm. I don't know how I'm I'm yeah. going to phrase this question in a less uncomfortable <laughs> manner, but but I'm sure you know you know where I'm from. Yeah, yeah. From.
1: Okay, here's the thing. I don't want to sound like I'm being a bit more condescending, but I think, uh, based on what you said initially, um, you said that you know there were not a lot of like content of BLM's nature at the time. I don't think we we're the first, to be honest, I we one, and I don't think we we're the last bone. and I don't think we're transacted in any way, shape, or form, now. Because I think the thing about BLM is that BLM also tried to talk to all these initiatives that were at the time mushrooming, like you said. And yeah, we found out that there, there were a lot of like, you know, initiatives that were doing like a lot of interesting things as well, right? So coming into it um, and learning about how the society was, I, I initially have this slight skepticism towards how perhaps, you know, or maybe, you know, the Malay community or the, you know, Malay speaking community, not they don't necessarily talk about all the intellectual stuff, which I found out wasn't, wasn't as necessarily the case. Lah. Perhaps they were movements at that time that were already, I guess, doing these things is that they weren't um, as well publicized. But maybe during during BLM's run, yeah, we started seeing a lot more of these initiatives mushrooming coming out. And the fact that these conversations are happening by itself is good without I don't want to sound condescending, like, which I'm saying, like, oh, just because it happened, therefore it's good. But I think it needs to be credited. It needs to be recognized. Because because sometimes I think outsiders or people who are not that, that familiar with the language, I think myself think tend to have this perception that the community is only more invested in perhaps, you know, purely entertainment, gossips, and, 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 you know, things that are just fun, like, and, which is not necessarily the case. So, so I would credit the fact that, you know, there are movements that are already discussing these things. Intellectually, it shows that that you know actually there is a demand and supply now when it comes to when it comes to intellectual conversations um you know happening in Malay. Uh, but at the same time, you're right. You know, um, there were some of them that have that kind of tones eventually. So while I applaud their attempt at trying to be more intellectual, I guess to a certain extent, it's also quite difficult to perhaps you know run away from from that aspect question of identity is always there i suppose question of recognizing who who they are and where they belong will eventually be part of the equation i suppose and i guess globalization is also not an easy thing to deal with for the community eventually these are the i guess touch points and you know areas that they will eventually want to start exploring start thinking about i know who what kind of materials you are referring to like, when you you know when you describe these things like you know movement that started out, you know, trying to intellectualize stuff, but at the same time they eventually arrive at the conclusion that okay, you know, and there were a lot of like attempts at trying to justify or find all this like, you know, alternative side of history that perhaps back their beliefs or their their way of understanding things, right? Their concerns are different. Like maybe they're more invested in, in one thing to perhaps defend their position, um, defend their beliefs, defend defend who they are. Or maybe they're even like find, trying to find themselves, right? I think to some extent. It's difficult to talk about a about culture in that sense because I think I, I'm not the best person to talk about it because I feel like my lens is quite privileged as well. Like I come from a slightly more privileged position, obviously. Um, while not necessarily English-speaking during my formative years, I eventually became one, I suppose. So I guess I always have that, I won't say advantage, but I always have that, that. My lens has always been from that particular perspective. Lah. And, and because I come from that position, but at the same time, my background is also slightly different because i am not you know, an urban kid or whatever i can perhaps empathize but not necessarily totally understand where they're coming from but i'll probably say that that it's, it's driven by a sense of you know trying to find their own identity you know and there is always this fear of you know losing our identity right which honestly you know even as, as a, i don't want to use labels but as someone who, who's in this quote-unquote slightly more liberal progressive bubble i do think about as well I may mean, not necessarily adopt the more nationalistic undertones of these groups, but it's something that I do ponder about as well, and not in a very defensive way, like, But but in a more like okay, yeah, but yeah, how do we you know still have our identity, at the same time be quote more or be more quote-unquote progressive? It's it's a very nuanced subject, like, So I and I feel like it's not as easy, which is why I empathize with these groups, I suppose, only because I I my exposure is different. Like, I, yeah, if you want to make it personal, yeah, because my exposure is different, and therefore I can be on this side of the fence as opposed to on their side of the fence. But, you know, if I'm not as exposed, I can easily be on their side of the fence as well. So, privilege plays a huge part in that as well. I personally feel, and that, that's how I've been, I guess, thinking about things these days through the lens of privilege. <laughs> so, it tends to be like, I don't know, maybe it's a crush as well, but at the same time, I can't run away from the fact that, saying, oh, you know what? You're lucky, quote-unquote, because you're privileged. That is easy for you to be on the, quote-unquote, right side of the argument or the equation.
0: I know that um, you're trying to to not cause a lot of controversy with your (laughs) response. I I get that. Um, (laughs) But I also want to say that uh, we've had a lot of conversations like this um, in private, you and I. And the reason why I wanted you to be my social commentator on this subject is because yeah, you are in in a pretty unique position as someone who has a foot in one side and the other foot on the other side and therefore you can have that more I suppose intersectional perspective on this subject and I feel that that's very valuable and I know that you're really swamped with work but I feel that you need to <laughs> write more or, 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 or you know produce more uh, content on this subject because I think that that kind of perspective is maybe I wouldn't say lacking I wouldn't say that it, it's not a subject that's been written about but I feel that you know it can help tip the scale a little bit and, and have a more balanced approach to subjects about national identity and cultural pride and th- those kind of subjects. I mean, it is a very touchy subject, and we are as a as a country we tiptoe around it because we we tend to not want to offend anybody. Um, but you know, the the good thing, like you said, is that. We are having those conversations. Um, But another thing that that mushroomed around the same time in the mid-2010s is uh, indie publishers. uh, And and a lot of them publishing Malay literature. And you see that resurgence of interest in Malay writings, uh, which is great because I remember in that same period, people were asking, what's the last book in malay that you've read and a lot of people were quoting books that they read in in high school right for their spm right that was the last book the anthology that they have to read for for their malay paper in school Um, but now like i'm sure people can can name recent books that they've read that's not because they have to read it for school you know uh, indie publishers how much have they helped shape the conversations around Malay uh, content, original content specifically, not Mm -hmm. so much translations?
1: Unfortunately, I guess I don't consume these books as much. But at the same time, it is a phenomenon. I think so. I've spoken to enough people in industry that I've sort of like, gained a bit of understanding of the situation. I think, to a certain extent, funny because, because I think like... In my engagements with them, whenever I said like, "Oh, are they are these groups responsible in bringing about interest in reading," the answers that I get sometimes are like, "Which I'm oh well, actually the culture of reading reading has always been there. It's just that we have never had enough mm. materials for us to read, and therefore I guess indie publishing, indie publishers have sort of like helped feed the hunger, bring that back up." Uh, feed the hunger, I suppose. So, so, not that I don't want to give them credit in helping out, but at the same time, to totally dismiss that point is not fair either. Lah. I feel like to the extent they have helped, they have contributed to increasing the, the interest in reading Malay language literature a lot more. And these have been proven by how popular, you know, the more mainstream book fairs are, you know. To the extent, you know, at one point it became a bit of a trend. I don't think, yeah, that's a necessarily good thing either, but it has become a trend, you know, like, oh, you're a cool kid when you read indie books. If you want to critically, um, I guess take a look at you know the kind of reading materials, um, then that's another thing that I think a lot of people have argued about as well uh, to a certain extent. And I think I, I also, having read some of the works from these indie publishers, I can sort of like attest to the kind of writings that that, that they, they produce as well uh, I think, and but it depends on on the taste of the people. Right? You have some good stuff, but at the same time, you also have you know things that are pretty popish. So the quality can be questionable sometimes, you know. Because um, as much as they try to be edgy, they do try to be, I guess, critical in certain things. It can also feel pretty um, juvenile sometimes, pushing the boundaries for the sake of pushing the boundaries without actually injecting some form of criticality to it. But because the mainstream market has always been very homogenous to a certain extent, it's not that easy. To break that barrier, that the fact that you do something different, it throws people are like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, you're doing something different, therefore you're cool and whatnot. But if you wanna be a bit more critical, you know, looking at it in a more critical lens, lah. I feel like, yeah, and and these these are things that have been said by people as well. The fact that because we've been served, the bar is so low. Um, and again, I'm not dissing the mainstream market as well because I feel like the mainstream market also serves a certain market, right? It's a supply and demand. But going back to indie, yeah. So because the bar has been set so low. The minute you do something quite unquote different, you're already considered like oh breaking the boundaries, pushing the boundaries and whatnot. So this this might sound a bit controversial based on, based on people I've spoken to and the kind of reading materials that I've read. It's not that difficult to actually get a book published, and we have a lot of people using social media these days, right? And you know you have authors writing stuff on social media, wrong posts and everything. So what happened was that oh publishers see that oh this guy has like I I follow him on Facebook or Twitter. He has a very interesting long-form writings, and he has very interesting opinions and thoughts on certain things, observations. So what happens is that decided they approach the publishers or the publishers approach them, offer them a book deal and what they'll do is just whatever they wrote on Facebook, they compile to a book and then they add a bit of stuff and then they start selling it. So there's also that. Not to say that these reading materials are not interesting because they, some of them are quite interesting but these are also the things that are being produced. Basically mm-hmm. musings on Facebook. And again, the quality... While they can be good, interesting stuff, but, or maybe I'm just being traditional, they don't necessarily shape the way writing should be. Mm. But maybe that's modern writing for you. I don't know. Like, honestly, you know, maybe I'm, okay, I'm trying to be critical of, of my own thoughts as well. <laughs> and it didn't help their case when some of the editing was a bit poor. But sadly, the industry also didn't last that long. Funny because they were doing so well, and most of them said this, yeah, they were doing well because um, the government of the day then was like, giving them. Book vouchers, right? And all the students actually spend their book vouchers by buying all these indie books. And once they stop that program, um, people stop buying the books eh, because they don't have the funds for it. So, like, I mean, to a certain maybe some publishers are still staying strong, but you know, a lot of them are just barely surviving. Lah. But we also have then a lot more other in- interesting offshoots of, of this, you know, I don't say indie, not the pulpish kind but you also have like the more uh, mature kind for because because you can tell that the indie market also caters to a slightly younger demographic so people like you and me might be more invested in or more interested in reading alternative books or alternative books published by indie publishers but Content that's a bit more mature as well. And that, and this is where you see, like like for example, I think I, a former colleague of mine also, Rahma, I'm not sure, I mean, you know Rahma right? She's now working with Iman Publication that I think does mostly religious books. And she told me that there's that, a big market there as well. So, people are buying these kind of books lah. Self-help books, you know, spiritual books, which are a bit more critical, a bit more um, insightful. But not necessarily mainstream, nah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to see uh, books that are in the mainstream market. That's more. I don't want to use the word constrained, but I, I suppose they follow more rigidly the the rules of DBP. Mm-hmm. And then you see yeah. <laughs> alternative books yeah. that use not just like big English words in place of maybe. Uh, M- Malay words or maybe because that word doesn't exist or, or it's not well known in the Malay language but you also sometimes like what's more jarring for me is, isn't the, the English words it's the Bahasa WeChat it's almost like a different language you know Bahasa WeChat because <laughs> I'm, I've am i never been in that WeChat generation I don't know if you have but <laughs> wow
1: <laughs> definitely not yeah I, I guess that's another thing if you, if you want to observe it more closely, I think it, that has something to do with the fact that I think we don't like to be schema. Mm. And I think to a certain extent, I don't know why, and I, this is something that I've always been wondering as well until as recent as like, I think past six months or you know, since last year, we, not to say I, I I finally get it, get it, but I am beginning to see the appeal of not being a schema. La, quote, unquote. In fact, um, I think throughout my time doing BLM, I can't run away from being schema because, only because I that's how I talk. That's how I talk and that's how I approach and that's how I construct my sentences. So, so I, I don't personally... I love it, by the way, honey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that is something that I wish to be able to do, I think, not being that schema. But unfortunately, I can't run away with it. But I'm sort of like, I'm comfortable with the identity as well. The reason why I brought that up is because I think, I don't know why our, as society, we are very averse towards schemar-ness. And again... Um, that's what DBP seems to be offering lah. or rather, you know, the mainstream readings, the mainstream books, mainstream publications, they seem to be offering reading materials that are very formulate in terms of the language, right? So again, another appeal of, of indie publication is their, their writing is very, I won't say true to life, but almost there because people are aware, you know, they are aware of the fact that this is not how people talk in real life, you know, like, in a very, like, stilted language. Even via TV series films, you know, some of them used to have that kind of very stilted language. They know that that's not how real people talk. So, and they find that they can relate more to this kind of indie publications because the indie publication tend to use languages or uh slangs that are more, quote-unquote, relatable, that mimics real life, quote-unquote, and hence they gravitate to a stella. Like, for me, I understand what you mean about this whole, like, without because for me the bigger the bigger thing that we should be looking at is our quote-unquote averseness towards schemas and i'm not saying that because i'm pro (laughs) schemaness. Just that i find it quite interesting that that we are we are so averse to rigidity Mm. as a a community right and because we are very the community itself can be quite filial can be quite um i don't say rigid but can can live within a certain set of codes a set of rules And they can respect that. But at the same time, they need to find the avenue to get out of that. And I suppose, you know, when it comes to language, I guess that's one of the avenues where they like, you know what, we live with a set of rules, we respect this and that. Let's be a bit more fluid when it comes to language. Let's be a bit more hip when it comes to language. And therefore, that's how they sort of like push away all form of formality and rigidness and sort of embrace this whole like, you know way of talking that's perhaps true to life which i don't blame to be honest because i can understand why that's appealing i started watching a football show on astro you know done by like it's called where it's like you know one host talking to two guests about football it's done in malay which is you know good because they talk about the the english premier league obviously the the most watched league in here in malaysia but the presenter the main presenter doesn't talk in that professional tone this guy talks in a very like macam am gila you know well I'm still slightly uncomfortable with it sometimes only because I'm so used to a very formal approach to, to TV um, to presentation I can understand the appeal of it and that show was also pretty popular because of that because I think sometimes maybe indirectly we also feel like we don't like to be talked down to and sometimes sometimes you know when when you come in you, you know use formal words formal sentences people tend to feel like oh okay this guy is or this person is a bit above me so when you start hearing people talking in your style in your, yeah, in your slang while still being able to I guess f- flesh out ideas in a very good way you tend to have slightly more respect to that person so, so I guess that's, that's the whole dynamic that I, I and I'm to a certain extent still struggling with but at the same time I'm beginning to understand why I suppose yeah. Prior to
0: our conversation today, Hanif, I I felt like um I'm a little bit more conservative about language use, and I and I like that schema, like standard Malay style of delivery. Even in, I mean, obviously in day-to-day conversations, if I'm going to the kedai mama to order for something, I'm not going to, you know, use super standard formal Malay. But I like deliveries uh, in. Especially in the media, whether traditional or new media, that's like very much the Bulala larut malam delivery. But you're right; I think it's completely different kind of skill to be able to uh, use this uh, WeChat style, the casual Malay, and and convey the thoughts. It's not something that I'm used to doing. I mean, I'm familiar with past SMS. Because we're from that generation, right, the nineties and early two thousands, where we use Bahasa SMS to shorten our attacks because of uh, you know it's another twenty cent yeah. or thirty cent. <laughs> I suppose that it's an offshoot of that, maybe. Um, not that we have yeah. um, word count barriers now, but it's so interesting how how language evolved in that sense, no?
1: Yeah, and I I guess we also have to take into factor. You know, people come from very diverse backgrounds, right? I think, and and I think at the end of the day, you want a sense of familiarity as well, I suppose. Because, because I think I used to, funnily enough, I used to be a bit more turned off by even dialects, to be honest. Because I, I used to have this, again, coming from a very quote-unquote privileged background, I tend to, you know, associate, like, for example, like a very localized dialect to, I guess, traditionalism, I suppose, you know? and as i grow older you know you you learn about things you become a bit more mature then you start appreciating a lot more so i think there's also that right There's also the fact that we need to recognize that not everyone has that background not to be able to appreciate it all falls back to relatability right like you know if i can find someone that can that speak the way i do But still talk about ideas. I would definitely like gravitate towards that person, right? Because because at least the way that person speaks, it's not like you know you know talking in this very posh quote unquote posh way of talking.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're right. Because I remember when I was still with BFM, I had a, I had an interview with an anthropologist and a sociolinguist, and we were talking about um, the Sabahan dialect and how Sabahan Malay versus like standard Malay is very different, right? Um, and same with to an extent, Sarawakian Malay, and of course the East Coast dialects, the Northern uh, dialects, and how when we come to the city, we mask. That accent, and we we speak standard Malay instead, so that we're not identifiable, and so that we don't get um, this prejudicial treatments because of um, the perception of where we're from. Hmm.
1: Um, That that's pretty interesting. Like, I mean, if you don't mind me asking you, Pulakje, like, 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 do you think that that comes from like the the potential treatment that might come from knowing where X person is from is necessarily? prejudicial in nature or like, yeah, because I, like the, the mature me, the me right now would be definitely more appreciative hearing, uh, you know, Sarawakian speaking Sarawak language, right? But, yeah, like like for example, you know, being that privileged gay, like people, you know, when I was in uni last time, because I speak English, some people assume that I'm from KL, so I'm like, oh no, I'm not from KL, I'm from Melaka. So they were like, oh okay, cool, like, yeah, I thought that you're from KL because you can speak English and then, when you speak Malay, point, you sound like you don't sound like you're from, from from different part of Malaysia or you sound like you're from KL lah, basically. So, so yeah, yeah. So maybe yeah, maybe you can answer that. Like, do do people from outside of KL who have like a very strong identity, like language wise, especially, feel the need to must that must their language up when when they're in KL or in in. in sure. In, in. I mean,
0: I can speak personally, but also. From my conversation with the anthropologist who obviously has done work in this area, um it's 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 a very common phenomenon. When you come to KL and you can be easily identified as someone from Sabah or or Strawa, um, you get the you know microaggression from the taxi drivers and you, <laughs> I mean, I'm walking you through this this whole process. Yeah, you just arrive in Kiel. Yeah. You have a one-hour, one and a half hour ride from the airport to the city center. You're stuck with this taxi man who's um asking you a billion questions about uh where you're from. Uh, is this your first time to Malaysia? You know, when, when you know so and so is uh, part of Malaysia. Or um how long have you um had electricity there? Do you have running water? Uh, do you still live in trees? You know, that kind of question. Um, there's there's definitely uh, a difference in treatment because of the immediate assumption of, of of the kind of customer we would be simply because of where we're from. I'm yeah maybe I'm shielded from from this that I am not that aware of
1: to be honest. Like I understand the need to obviously speak in a common dialect like I suppose like I mean if you're in KL because sometimes. Like you can't understand if let's say you you speak uh, in different dialect. Like, like so that one is understandable, but it's at the, same the time, accent.
0: You you can be identified by the accent, and that's the trouble. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I wish like I wish like we we're more inclusive in that sense as well, right? Like 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 allowing for that accent to still be apparent. It shows how diverse we are, you know, as, as a community. But I can I can empathize with the fact that there are there are some prejudices when it comes to you know recognizing where you're from, now, I
0: suppose. Yeah, uh, so I guess my my final question, um, if I can wrap it up, um, and I and I ask uh, a previous guest about this as well because um, she's a linguist, I like to know your perspective on this. Do we have the vocabulary and the cultural habit to discuss serious issues in Malay to have intellectual discourses around? Serious information, serious thoughts, whether it's about the pandemic, for instance, or whether it's about misinformation on, on social media. Are we going to leave behind a segment of the community who don't have the vocabulary and or the cultural habit to do that?
1: Mm, oh, Good question. Um, are you talking about the literal vocabulary or the... The, vo- the semantic vocabulary. <laughs> no, because I, I feel like there needs to, we need to differentiate between the two only because um, I recognize the struggles that we are facing right now when it comes to having to translate things like even, you know, in the, the technological sense, right? I think um, that's perhaps one of the struggles that the modern language is currently facing when it comes to trying to translate technical jargons from the tech world, right? So, which is why you have all this, you know, you know, people not making fun of, but like, you know, we, but we have terms like um, swap photo for selfie and things like that, right? But my position is always like I always lean on dbp side on this when it comes to the creation of new words for for jargons that we are not as familiar with, regardless of how they approach it, because when you speak to them, they they have reasons for it, and sometimes some of their reasons are reasonings are very cool as well, like oh. Swa is a word that's, you know, it's an old word, but, you know, it's our word. So, you know, let's use our word to describe selfie, right? So, I feel like that's kind of cool. I feel like like in order to create the literal vocabulary, sometimes you have to go through that process. Uh, And because of how fast-paced the world is currently when it comes to even terms these days, right? I mean... um, not only on on the technological side of things but also like you know in our daily conversations right? you know like word like cancels and limiting something else yeah so how do you how do you then translate these kind of terms right terms that we are now i guess more familiar with because that's how that's how fluid language is, is right slangs and terms so i guess there is a need to first look at perhaps trying to find literal translations to, to some words whether we have the vocabulary i i, I think we do i think we do um but it requires a bit of work i suppose like in the sense that you have to create the tools first before you can use the tools right i definitely think that as a community as a language the malay language is definitely fluid enough to be able to to be used to to discuss serious stuff to discuss serious issues um but sometimes you have to create certain tools to enable it to to be able to to be used that way lah um yeah because i think like the like the i don't think the language has shirked from its responsibility to necessarily be a form of communication to others lah. But because of the world that we live in and how fast-paced things are and how fast new words come up and develop and certain words like, yeah, you know, how semantically different things are these days, there it feels like there needs to be a form of a catch-up that I guess the Malay language has to play as well. But at the same time, we are also indirectly saying that there's a main canon, and somehow the Malay language has to follow that canon, which I think is also a bit unfair because the Malay language is also its own world, and there are terms that you know, perhaps the global canon can't even like fathom and understand, right? But are still like well used in the Malay language, and so 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 it's it's a bit of both. Like. I understand where your question is coming from, and yes, um, maybe in a question of like, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, when it comes to about communicating health questions or um, issues relating to health, or uh, relating, relating to the environment, perhaps. Malay language has to play a bit of catch up because because the canon is perhaps in English or in different language. And therefore, yeah, that's how that's how it works. But at the same time, you know, there are other things, you know, within the language that that's perhaps, you know, the global world needs to I'll say catch up, but need to understand as well. So and, and because we've been talking about schema just now, so translating is one phase of it. Adapting it to the way the language is spoken among the communities and other I suppose so. So I guess it has to go through that process, I suppose. Because at the end of the day, I think if you want to communicate stuff, you will find a way to communicate, lah. I suppose. But the idea is to simplify things as much as possible, I suppose, or make it more adaptable so that people can understand better. Yeah, because because the onus is on the communicator to to somehow communicate, right? As opposed to the other way around, because because if the information is if you want the information to be disseminated, then you have to do a bit of work, lah, I suppose, and because you know, not all people out there are always actively looking for information or new information or different information, right? So, so the onus is perhaps on the communicator, I suppose. I guess that that's my take on it, lah.
0: That's radio producer Hanif Powerdin on Malay social commentary and discourse. If you'd like to join me on the show for conversations like this, get in touch at tinakamila.substack.com. Again, you can find the transcript to this conversation there. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with someone. Till the next one. Goodbye for now.